0: If you're in this series with us, uh, it's called Streams in the Desert. This image of us walking in the desert of life, how many know the desert desert sucks the life from you? And it's how Jesus continually invites us to come and drink from the stream, from the well of life. That if we're going to make it in this world, we have to drink deeply from the streams of life. And we started this series several weeks ago with John 4, where Jesus sits at this well with a woman... And the woman has been drinking from every well imaginable of the world, and she's continually thirsty, and Jesus invites her into a better way. He says, you drink from those wells, you're going to thirst again. You drink from my well, you will never be thirsty again. We've talked about subjects like thirst and wonder and mundane and overflow, and I get the privilege and honor of our topic this morning is none other than sorrow. Come on now. Our our teaching team wasn't fighting to preach this one this morning. So I drew the short straw. Now, I'm excited about this because how many know Jesus wants to meet us in our sorrow? He wants to meet us in our difficulty and our struggle. Uh, How many in the room, just a show of hands real quick, you've gone through our pathway class here, kind of our introductory class, a lot of you in the room? Yeah, not nearly as much as first first service, second service. You you, got to get on that. Um, We've taken thousands of people through this now. It's this discovery-based class that helps you discover how God's wired you to grow, uh, how God wants to use you. And one of the things that you do in this class is you do your story timeline. You develop a story timeline. In this story timeline, in fact, I have mine from 10 years ago, believe it or not. We used to call this class City Life. And just because he's sitting right here, this was introduced by Mr. Brad Sprague, one of our elders right here, like 12 years ago. Brad introduced this to us, and we're still using it today. This story timeline, above your timeline, goes yellow sticky notes. And the yellow sticky notes are the high moments in your life. They're mountaintops. They're things that you're celebrating, where God moved. And that's actually pink up there if you can't see it. But pink sticky notes below the timeline are painful experiences, the difficult moments, the things that you didn't want to go through and then we actually go to the next level in this and we put dots where God moved in significant ways and where we saw God at work and you begin to break down your story timeline and you know your story but sometimes you don't step back from your story and see it all laid out and you see how God has been weaving certain things that God has been moving in certain ways how many know your greatest calling in life will often come out of your greatest and deepest pain that's something that God grabs your heart and you begin to, to understand, like, God wants to redeem that. Yes, that was a failed marriage, and that's a part of my past. I, I wish I could change it, but I can't. But guess what? God can redeem it, and it can be a part of a story of grace and goodness. Amen? And you begin to look at your story. And honestly, I, I'm going to turn 40 in a few months, so I've been doing a little bit more reflecting because I'm almost old, right? <laughs> I know. started City Church when I was 24. Who let me lead? Come on now. Who, who, who showed up? when I was 24 and the last 10 years of my life to be honest were are some of my most significant pink sticky notes some tough seasons and I look back on those now and I'm like I would never ever 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 want to go through that but I would never ever ever trade it because I see God's hand and the way that God has shaped me nobody wants to Scars, But scars become the story and the testimonies of his love and faithfulness, don't they? They become our stories about how God sustained us and God carried us and he led us through. And we learn about God's faithfulness as we draw near to God and we we look and we ask the questions, God, how, how are you using this? I don't want this, but God, how are you using it? How are you shaping me? How are you forming me? We know from the book of Psalms 34:18, it says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In some mysterious way, God actually draws near to us when we're broken. Now, let's be honest. Is God distant from us when we're on the mountaintop? No. In fact, I think that's probably more of the position of our heart than it is God's heart. How many know when we're crushed in spirit, there's something about us that draws us to the heart of God? Because now we can't rely on our own ability. We can't rely on our pride and we can't say, look at me, what I've accomplished. No, God, I'm walking through the valley and I need you. I need you. And there's something about being crushed in spirit and brokenhearted that leads us to the heart of God. There's a story in the book of 1 Kings that have always deeply resonated with me. It's one of my favorite, especially Old Testament passages, and I don't have time to read two chapters of text this morning, so I'm going to keep you, I'm going to update you on the story to give you some context. There's some uh, characters that you need to know in this story. The first character is Elijah. Elijah is the prophet, the man of God, called by God to bring uh, God's message to the people of God when the, when the people of God were in rebellion. Uh, There's a guy by the name of Obadiah. Obadiah is a unique character in this story in that he's kind of stuck in between worlds. He is a man of faithfulness to Yahweh. He's actually saved some of the prophets of God, but he's also uh, kind of commander over the palace for King Ahab. King Ahab has turned from the ways of Yahweh, now serving Baal and false gods. And if you thought King Ahab was bad, you should meet his wife, Queen Jezebel. She's like the epitome of evil. In fact, the term Jezebel becomes synonymous with evil throughout the Bible because that's just how bad she really was. There's a drought and famine in the land of Israel for the past three years. God comes to Elijah. He says, go to King Ahab and tell him the drought's going to end. And so Elijah goes on this journey, and when he's coming across the road, he comes in contact with Obadiah. He says, Obadiah, go to your master, your King Ahab, tell him that I'm coming and that I'm a, I want to meet with him. Elijah and Ahab have this meeting. Ahab sees Elijah coming and he says, there you are, you troubler of Israel. Elijah looks at Ahab, and I'm summarizing the whole chapter for you this morning because we just don't have time to read it all. Elijah looks at Ahab and says, the reason that God sent a drought and famine is because you've walked away from the covenant. You've served other gods, and this is part of God's discipline. How many know God disciplines those he loves? He does. The New Testament tells us that's why we're sons and daughters because God loves us enough that he'll, he'll allow us to walk through difficulty if it moves our heart towards his heart. And this story that we read sometimes doesn't seem like grace and love because the Old Testament sometimes has this way of showing God's sovereignty over his goodness, but God's still good in the Old Testament. And God loves you so much, do you know that he won't allow you to persist in your sin because he knows sin will lead to death and he loves you too much to allow you to persist in death? That's grace. That's grace. That's love. And God's doing that even here in this passage. There was a sacred place in the Old Testament for both the worshipers of Baal and the worshipers of Yahweh, and it was Mount Carmel. And so Elijah gets this idea. He says, let's, let's bring everybody together on Mount Carmel, and let's figure out who really is God. So the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, you all gather together and I'll I'll gather together. So 850 against one, and we'll figure out who really is God. And this is significant in the passage because Elijah actually says in the Hebrew, the word is like we, we translate it limping. He says to the people of God, stop limping around. Stop wavering. Like you have become experts of sitting on the fence. Like, you know how to, like, be in the world and, and say that you're of Yahweh, but you can't do that because God's holy and set apart, and if God's holy and set apart, then guess what? You have to look like him. You have to be holy. There's none of this, like, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm of the kingdom of God, but I'm going to live according to the kingdom of the world. That doesn't work. Elijah, stop wavering, people of God. Stop limping around. It's time to choose. And I think the people of God were like, you know what? Let's... Let's see who wins. Let's figure out who wins, and then you know I'll just go with go with the better team. You, any, you know anybody like that? I know some people. Like even the Bedlam game tomorrow, they're like, I don't know. Let's see who wins. I'm like, you're not a fan. Get out of here. You know? It's like you can't be for both teams. You're one or the other. And there will be a time of response for all of us OU fans after the end of service. <laughs> I'm with you. Time of healing. Elijah says to him, Stop limping. You're so weak. Choose who you're going to serve. If you know this story, it's one of probably the most well-known passages in the Old Testament, it is the prophets of Baal begin to circle around and cry out to God, and, and Elijah taunts them. Maybe Baal doesn't hear you. Maybe you should, you should dance a little more. Maybe, maybe you should pray louder and nothing happens. We know Elijah, eventually he says, "Douse the sacrifice with water, just to leave any doubt that this was God. Let's go ahead and douse the sacrifice in water. He prays to God and fire comes down, consumes the sacrifice, all of the water around the altar. They reestablished the covenant with Israel that day. This is, Elijah says, repent, turn from your ways. Let's reestablish the covenant. And only like the Old Testament can do, they slaughter 850 false prophets right there on Mount Carmel. Come on now. It's a good day for Elijah. A good, good day. Elijah says to Ahab, go eat and drink because rain's about to fall on the land. Elijah climbs back up on the mountain, gets down on his knees, prays to God for rain, sends his assistant to go, his servant to go look. Servant comes back, nothing. Do it again. Seven times Elijah prays. And after the seventh time, the servant comes back and he says, I see a cloud in the distance about the size of a man's hand. And Elijah says, get ready, it's about to pour. And the next few minutes rains thunder, and it rains like it hasn't had in over three years. One of the greatest displays of both faith and audacity and the power of God in all of Scripture. But let's read what happens next. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. It says Elijah was, say this with me, Elijah was afraid. And he ran for his life. Elijah was afraid and he takes off running. The same Elijah who moments ago had just called down fire from heaven. He just sent rain on the land that hadn't seen rain for three years. And guess what? He talked a lot of trash along the way, taunting, all of these things. And then one word from Jezebel, and Elijah goes running. I got to be honest with you, as a kid, when I read, read this passage, I always thought to myself, Elijah, you are such an idiot. Because if I had just called down fire from heaven, I'd be like praying for everybody. I'd be like this man of faith. I was that kid growing up. I'm like, I'm going to put two sticks together. God, if you move them like this, come on now, I'll serve you forever. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. (laughs) Anybody else do that? I just need you. I know you can. Just do it for me once, you know? (laughs) Called down fire from heaven. Now he flees for his life. As I've gotten older, I actually think that Elijah is less stupid than I did as a kid because I've learned some lessons, and you've probably learned some lessons. How many know you can have faith for one thing, but sometimes you don't have faith for the next thing? Anybody ever been there? You're like, why was my faith so big and so grand for that? And then this one, I just can't, I don't know what it is. I'm not gonna muster you with another story of how we got into this building, because many of you have been with us, you know know the journey. But for me, this was such a test of faith, because it was over four years. It was a four and a half year journey. I had walked through 35 buildings around town. And every time I prayed about it, and some of them we went pretty deep into even negotiations and talking, I felt like the Spirit of God was saying, Not yet. And I'm like, We've been in a temporary setup and tear down facility for 13 years, God. My, my set-up and tear down team is not thinking, Not yet. You know? <laughs> They're thinking, Get us out of here. And I remember like, we, had to, we had to have this legal battle play out on this building between the owner and, and the bank. we're like, All right, we've waited 12, 13 years. We'll wait a little bit longer. And we allowed this legal battle to play out. And then we had this joyous day where they handed us the keys to this building and it was February of 2020, three weeks before the world shut down. But that's okay. It's, it's like a, it's a little global pandemic. We'll be back in a couple weeks, right? We'll wait a little bit longer. And then in 2020, as we're waiting, they were like, oh, the budget that you had for renovations on this building, you might as well throw that out because you're looking at like twice as what it, what, what it was. Okay, well, we'll, we'll raise more money right? You know? Here's a little insider. You know this, but as a leader and the chief visionary and the lead pastor of this church, you're supposed to be a man of vision. I was running low on vision. And then our copper theft on this building happened over like 10 straight days. Ask Pastor Jim about this. He still has PTSD over this whole ordeal. My family was down with COVID that week. I couldn't even come up here. And for me, that was like the straw. God, I could wait for that. I can wait for this. I can do this again. But after that, I was like, I missed you. Like, I missed it. Like, we were really patient. Like, I prayed for that. And I really, like, deep down inside, people don't know, like, the darkness and the cave of, like, man, why? Why? Why have we been patient for so long and now it seems like it's not going to come to fruition? And this building wasn't the answer. It wasn't the end goal. But why has it been so hard? Why is it so hard? There's times where you feel like you're walking in obedience. Why is it so hard? I have a passion for pastors. I love pastors. In fact, most of the second half of my life, I I think I'm going to give to pastors and and helping them get healthy emotionally, spiritually, physically. Pastors are some of the most lonely people on the planet. It's one of the reasons that I run Unite My City here in town, um, to help pastors just connect. I mean, Thursday, we had a, we had this restaurant down the street filled with pastors around the table who are invested in each other in our marriages and our kids who are not territorial we're building the kingdom of God God together how many know our city changes when the spiritual leaders are friends it it just shifts and we're seeing that so two weeks ago uh, I took a group of pastors out to uh, Grand Lake on a little retreat and it was a time just to get away and relax uh, have fun we did some strategizing and time of prayer together um but it was also just a lot of fun and I, I loaded up the car of guys we had like five guys in the car and we're driving out in the middle of nowhere we're about to go play this uh, brand new par three course on, on Grand Lake and we're driving out there together and we drive by we're again we're in the middle of nowhere we drive by this tiny country church I'm talking about the whole building was like the size of this section right here and someone in the car said what everybody in the rest of the car was thinking they said any of you guys ever think it would be great just to move to the middle of nowhere and <laughs> pastor a church of like 12 people and everybody unanimously in the car was like yeah <laughs> that would be awesome and then there was like this quiet and then everybody was like but you know <laughs> after like 4 weeks i don't know i, I don't know what i would do with myself you know like that kind of scenario and i'm not telling you up here to tell you like to feel sorry for me or like pastors have it bad but let me tell you why it's so difficult right now to be a pastor it's so difficult because you are with people on the highest of highs, the mountaintops. You get to see the miracles and you get to experience this, which is great. But you are there in the lowest of lows. You are there in that moment of infidelity or adultery. Or when you get the diagnosis. Or You're there for the funeral. And let me tell you, sometimes emotionally, I, I'll be honest with you, I walk into rooms and I pray to God. and I'm like, God, give me, like you've got to fill this cup a little bit because I don't know if I have anything left to give at this moment. And then you'll have moments where people speak life over you and they speak truth into you. And then let me tell you, there are deep woundings of people who speak evil over you. That's so difficult. I I talked to some of my pastor friends, and this is the most difficult thing I think pastors deal with, is we're in a city where people are about as committed to their church as they are to the gym that they work out in. So the minute something comes up that's difficult, you're as a pastor is the last person to hear about it. You don't hear about it until they're gone and already talking about you. I played golf a few weeks ago with a guy. I didn't know they'd left our church. I'm talking to him, asking things, and it's like, I don't figure it out till later because I'm the last to know. And I, I felt like an idiot. Like, man, I would have loved for the opportunity to be able to work through whatever this is, but you didn't give me that opportunity. And so as pastors, sometimes what happens is you get close to people, you give them your life, and then on the other side of things, it's like it didn't exist. And so you begin to think to yourself, why do I even do this? Why do I do this? Like, I'm going to get another job, right, where I don't have to deal with all of this. And I got some pastors in the room that actually know exactly what I'm talking about. Come on now. Let me tell you, in your life, there's been moments of frustration. No matter what you do for a living, there's moments you're like, I'm done, right? Like, I don't want to deal with this, I want, I want to move on. In 1, Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Kings 18, this is a moment where whatever happens, Elijah's just like, get me out of here, get me out. I don't, I don't want to deal with it. And he begins to run into the desert. This could have been because of fear. Maybe it was fatigue. Maybe it was an attack of the enemy. Maybe it, it was one of those moments where he's like, it doesn't matter what I do, there's always going to be somebody else coming for me, right? I mean, he just has all the prophets of Baal slaughtered and he has this miraculous encounter and then Jezebel's like, nope, I'm, I'm about to get you. And he's like, I don't know if I can do this again. And he runs an entire day into the desert. 1 Kings 19 verse 4, I have had enough, Lord, Elijah said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell, fell asleep. Have you ever seen a picture of a broom tree in a desert? Check out this picture. If you were going to end your life, this is the perfect place to say I'm done. Right? I mean, like you used all of your energy even to get to this point. You don't have energy to get anywhere else. So you find the only piece of shade for miles around and you're just like, okay, this is where it ends. I'm done. And Elijah's having his little pity party because, God, I'm the only one that cares. I seem to be the only one that's fighting on your behalf. I'm the only one that wants to do this. Right? Take me. Take me. A. Hauser, in his kind of overview of this passage in 1 Kings, says this. He says, in three short verses, the writer of 1 Kings has totally changed the flow of the story. Victory seems to be transformed into defeat. The brave prophet into a cowering refugee and the victory over death and Baal into an opportunity for death to reassert itself through Jezebel's oath to take Elijah's life. I mean, and this is like a 180. I mean, can you imagine in about a 24-hour period of your life, your biggest yellow sticky note ever, high moment, and then you have your lowest pink sticky note ever, and it's like less than a day. You, you want to talk about mountaintops and valleys. And the question from this text becomes, how will Yahweh now prove to be faithful? How is Yahweh and how is God going to show up now that Elijah's not this mighty man calling down fire, but now he's running for his life afraid? 1 Kings 19. Let's dive a little bit farther into this. There Elijah went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broke them down your altars, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Verse fifteen, the Lord said to him, "Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you would get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel Meloah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu." Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. If you haven't noticed this about scripture, all throughout the text, how many know God, and you see this in the life of Jesus, they know how to ask really good questions. Elijah, why are you here? How many know God already knew the answer to that question? But questions like that reveal the heart, don't they? Elijah, why are you here? Why are you here? Why did you run? Elijah, go stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Now, from this broom tree, what happens is an angel from the Lord had given Elijah food and water to go 40 days to Mount Oreb. Mount Oreb is the same mountain where where Moses met with God. And so you have this theophany again. This This is the mountain of meeting again, where Elijah goes to the cave to meet with God. And Elijah waits for God through a violent wind, but how many know God was not in the wind? And then an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And then this fire, but God was not in the fire. Yahweh speaks in a quiet whisper to our man of God who is now void of strength and power. This is just my opinion or my take on this text, but I think God knows what we need when we need it. Amen? Just a few weeks earlier, Elijah had just called down fire from heaven. He had just seen this miraculous rain fall in the land. I don't know in this moment of our man of God needed some sort of magnificent overt miracle. I think in this moment, he needed the gentle whisper of his heavenly father. Aren't you grateful for the gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit in our life? Aren't you thankful that in our times of brokenness and times when we don't know what to do or we're just at our end, the gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit reminding us that we're sons and daughters, that we're deeply loved by God? Look at the arc of this story. Look at the highs and lows. I mean, you're talking about in a couple weeks and Elijah had filled up his story timelines with yellow sticky notes and pink sticky notes. I mean, you're, you're talking about calling down fire from heaven and running to the desert to die. You're talking about coming to a place where God reveals himself on Mount Oreb and, 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 and where he has this pity party and says, I'm the only one left, God. Look at, look at the scenario. It's an amazing the highs and lows but it was this presence of God. It was the presence of God that changed things. How many know God's manifest presence is a continual reminder that the creator creator of the universe knows, sees, and directs all things? When anybody comes in contact with the presence of God in scripture, it's almost like this reminder that God has been and always will be in control. The presence of God, even for us, is a reminder that God has always been directing things. The thing in your life that you feel like God may or may not be directing, God is smack dab in the middle of it directing. The people overseas, the wars, the rumors of wars, the countries that don't serve God, the dictators, the leaders, the presidents, everything is directed by the hand of God because God's will and his purposes will prevail. We know that about God. And it's in moments in God's presence where this becomes reality to to us. And we realize that God is God both on the mountaintop and the valley. That God displays his faithfulness in both our victory and our brokenness. At the end of this passage we just read, it may seem like insignificant details, but let me tell you it's not. Everything Yahweh tells Elijah is a reminder of God's plans and purposes. He says, Elijah, you're going to go back the way you came. You ran away, but now you're gonna travel back because I'm not through with you. You're gonna anoint Hazael, king of Syria. A- another example of how God uh, has control and dominion even over the non-Israelites. He has domin- dominion over the whole world. Remember what in the Old Testament, what God does for the elect is always for the non-elect. What God does for Israel is always for the sake of the world. That God is using Israel to bring the world and the nations to repentance and a covenant with him. And he reminds Elijah that. He says, you're going to anoint Jehu king of Israel. You're going to reestablish Yahweh's rule over the northern country of Israel. You're going to reestablish my covenant with him by making him king. You're going to go and you're going to anoint Elisha to take your place. How many know this would have been pretty humbling for Elijah? This is another reminder for you and me. God's purposes, his plans, what God wants to do in the world is not determined by you and I. Amen? Amen. We get to be a part of it. If we say no, God will raise up the next yes. We get to be a part of God's purposes and plans, but God's purposes and plans don't rest on me and you. Elijah thought he was a bigger deal than he really was. God, I'm the only one left. And he ends this by saying, actually, Elijah, there's 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal, and I'm gonna raise up this remnant to reestablish my covenant with the people of God. Do you know that thousands of years ago in this text and still today, God during dark times will always raise up a remnant? He'll always raise up a remnant. A small group of people who are committed to the ways of Yahweh and will say, no matter what happens, I will follow you. I believe in in our day and age right now, um, a time where the church needs renewal, where the church has become places where people come to be entertained or we switch churches like it's, like it's no big deal and it's not the covenant people of God and we're not really united together and on mission for Jesus, that God is raising up a remnant within the church who are desperate for the presence of God, people of prayer. i, I got to be honest with you, church. I'm a little bit worried about the next generation and saying, where are our prayer warriors? Where are the people who are intercede? This younger generation has an attention span of about 30 seconds. And so where are the people who will grab a hold of the altar and say, I'm not going to let go until God breaks through. Like, I'm so passionate about God. Pastor, I don't care if you entertain me. I don't care if I, did, if I liked that worship song or not. I'm not looking for every program you have because I'm so desperate for God. That's why I'm here today. I feel so desperately that God is raising up that kind of people in the church. we become such consumers And let me tell you, consumerism will destroy the mission of God. It will destroy the presence of God. Because you know what consumerism does? It places you at the center. You know what the church is about? It's about him and ministering to the body of Christ. And God's going to raise up that church. And I'm not sure if that's going to be a big church. I think it may be a small church. I think it may be a small group of people. I think it may be a remnant of people that God says, man, I'm gonna raise up this group of people to reestablish what the church is supposed to look like. People who will gather in a room with no agenda but other than to meet with me. People who aren't obsessed with every little detail and people come into the church now and they got a checklist of like 25 different things they need to see in their church and I look at them and I'm like, you better start that church because that church doesn't exist. <laughs> right? That's it. Pastor, we we really kind of need this program. No, what you need is you need to meet with Jesus. You need to be in the presence of God. You need to let your hunger and your desire for Jesus to override your own preferences and wants and desires. You need to stop making it about you. I can't say that to him. I can only preach that from stage, right? God's going to raise up a remnant. He always has and he always does. I really feel like in this season of our church God's raising up a remnant of people who are passionate about prayer passionate about the presence of God I really feel like that's the most important thing that we can do in 2024 we're taking just a lot of steps forward just to continue to create a culture of prayer and worship here in our church That's not a formula to grow a big church. That is a formula to grow big people. Elijah, 7,000 people. There's a remnant, haven't bowed their knee. I'm gonna raise them up. Elijah, I see everything, I know everything. I'm directing every little thing in movement. You've never been alone. I've directed your journey all along the way. I'm fully sovereign over all of your life and all of creation. It may seem seem like things are out of control, but guess what? I've always been in control. There are times in our lives when the world may seem like it's about to spin off its axis. Wars and massacres, another mass shooting, politics and scandals, religious trauma and divisiveness and everyone is just exhausted and angry and confused, and we run to the cave, we run to the desert, I just believe the Father is saying, man, as you live out this life with all of the brokenness and the things around you that are sucking for the life from you, I want you to drink deeply from my well. Drink deeply from my well of life. In our sorrow, Jesus invites us to come and drink deeply. Man, if there's sorrow in your heart this morning, maybe it's for something recent, maybe it's something a long time ago, but it's unsurrendered. What God wants to do is he wants to take that sorrow, the things that you've been holding on to, and he wants to transform it, but you have to give it to him. I think sometimes we want the transformation, but we don't let go of it. We don't actually give it to God and say, okay, here it is. The things that I've been holding on to, the unsurrendered, the unforgiveness, the bitterness, the things that I, I just, I don't, I don't want to let go of it, but I give it to you. And Jesus begins to overflow in our hearts, in our lives. If you would this morning, stand your feet with me across this room. If you would, as always, just close your eyes where you're at allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart, to your life. If you're new around here, there's times for the word, the message, the preaching to go forth, but it is the Holy Spirit that takes the word of God and applies it to our heart and life. So we always stop and we ask for the leading of the Holy Spirit. What are you speaking to us this morning? And I got a deep sense this morning even in pre-service prayer, that there are people that are so weary and dry. You're so worn out. You, You have been trudging through the desert of this life and Jesus is just gently whispering and inviting you this morning just to come and drink from his well. He's saying, sit down by my stream and let it just wash over you. Don't worry about tomorrow don't worry about what's next don't worry about how that's going to work out don't let fear well up inside of you but trust me some of you this morning you need to allow that to wash over your soul you are a son and daughter of the most high God he has been he will be he always is in control he sees you you can rest in him. You can drink from his stream of life, his well of life. <clears throat> Father, I pray this morning for people in this room, kind some people that need to let go of some sorrow, some brokenness, they've been crushed by life and they've allowed bitterness or resentment and unforgiveness begin to build. Father, we give it to you today. We surrender it before you. We just give it to you, God. People who are weary this morning, man, if they're honest, they're a little bit of like Elijah, and they're just like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I want to do this. I just kind of want to run into the desert Father, would you invite them to sit with you? God, I thank you for the leading of the Spirit this morning. God, that your Holy Spirit is here to transform, to change. God, we thank you that you're at work. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. I just really sense bitterness, bitterness towards God, bitterness towards somebody who deeply, deeply wounded you, and you just have not let that go. And Jesus is saying, I want to take that this morning. I want to take it. I took all of your shame and all of your condemnation and all of, all of the things that have happened to you, I took that to the cross with me. Maybe you're in this room and you just need to let go right now. Let go of it. Give it to Jesus. Give it to Him. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak, bring freedom in that area. Can we give you bitterness, resentment? God, we we're sorry that when we were wounded, God, we closed down our heart in heart life to others. We closed our heart to you. We're sorry. And we open it back up to you. We will not let other people, what they have done, dictate our relationship with you. We choose you. We know that you are good. We know that you are loving. So we give that to you. Be patient for a few more minutes, City Church, be patient. Listen to the voice of the Spirit this morning for you. As God draws you to Him, as God speaks to your heart, the gentle whisper of the Spirit of God drawing His sons and daughters. Drink from my well, drink from my well, drink from my well, drink from my well of life. Let it overflow in your heart again. Let it overflow in your heart again. I'm not done with you. It's not over. This isn't it. Drink from my well, drink from my well we thank you. We thank you for your spirit. God, sometimes we don't need another message. We don't need another sermon or a song or an event. We need to meet with you. We need to hear your voice, the leading of your spirit. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to prepare our hearts to receive the body and the blood this morning. Just stay in this attitude of prayer and worship with us.